Welcome to the International Door Association's DoorCast. The ITA DoorCast will provide news and notes from the building and remodeling industry and tips and tidbits to help you improve your business. Now, here's your DoorCast host, IDA Executive Director, Mike Fisher. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Fisher, Executive Director of IDA, here for your IDA DoorCast. We're going to talk today about antitrust for door dealers, do's and don'ts. We're happy to welcome Brian Schoolman to our DoorCast today. Brian Schoolman is an attorney with the Safran Law Offices in Raleigh, North Carolina. The Safran Law Offices have been providing legal counsel to IDA for almost 30 years. Brian has been with Safran for 18 years and has provided legal counsel for IDA for the past 13 years. Brian, welcome to the DoorCast and thank you so much for agreeing to come and talk to our listeners today. Well, thank you for having me, Mike. So Brian, we're going to talk about antitrust. And as you well know, IDA uses antitrust guidelines that your firm has prepared for us. Can you talk a little bit for us about the background and the purpose of those guidelines and how we got to where we are to actually use those as part of our operations? Sure, Mike. Uh, The reason for having the antitrust statement is because as a trade association, IDA is bringing together competitors at the same level of competition, that being dealers, as well as in different layers of competition, dealers and manufacturers. Now, it is perfectly appropriate to have trade associations under US and state antitrust laws. However, when you have trade associations, you have those sorts of people coming together, it's important to be mindful of the lines that can't be crossed. And so trade associations routinely will have guidelines or recognitions of the antitrust laws so that they can remind their members on a regular basis where the bright lines are that they should not cross. Thanks for that explanation. So this is really to defend the association against potential legal violations? It's both to protect the association against violations and to advise members not to engage in conduct that could be risky to themselves. It might seem like a great idea to throw out a topic and to discuss it or debate it or the like, but there are certain topics which should be treated as no-goes because they are deemed per se violations of antitrust laws, the most notable of which is the discussion of current and future pricing. Okay, Brian. So for those of us who aren't lawyers, can you describe or define what per se violation means? Sure. There are two ways that antitrust laws get enforced. There are certain types of violations which are deemed to be automatically unlawful and therefore simply by demonstrating that an action has been taken, it is considered to be a violation. Those are the per se violations. The other layer of antitrust law are those which the action itself may be unlawful, but it depends on the impact to the market or the impact to competition. And those are governed by what the courts call the rule of reason. 
such that if an action is deemed to be unreasonably damaging to competition, then it will be unlawful and enforceable under the antitrust laws. Whereas if the action doesn't rise to that level, then it can be acceptable. Let me just ask a clarifying question because you referred to discussions about current and future pricing and stated that that was a per se violation. So my question is, is it just the discussion or is it agreeing to take some action or both? It would be agreeing to take action would be the violation itself. But the reason for not discussing current and future prices is because even initiating the discussion in the right circumstance could be enough to telegraph the violation. And so if one competitor announces, we are going to be selling our widgets for $100 a unit starting next week to all of the other people in the room, if there was enough knowledge or foresight or planning such that that could be a market influencing act, then the mere statement alone through circumstantial evidence could be demonstrated to be in furtherance of an agreement to fix prices. That's great. Thank you. We just talked about current and future pricing discussions, but I know that that's not the only thing on the list that's part of our antitrust guidelines. Can you talk just briefly about what other kinds of issues are on there? Sure. The antitrust statement discusses, among other or states do not discuss market allocations or distribution areas, as well as not getting into the specifics of supplier or manufacturer problems. The reason for all of those is, again, because the topics themselves, if they lead to an agreement or act in contravention of antitrust laws, would be considered those per se violations and therefore actionable. Fixing prices is the most obvious and was kind of the the first uh, statement of antitrust but distribution of markets, deciding who you were going to compete with or who you were going to sell to in collusive action were also part of the first batch of violations that were included in the first federal antitrust law over 100 years ago. Thank you, Brian. Why do we call the antitrust guidelines guidelines What kind of distinction is there between guidelines and rules and laws? There are federal statutes which state things that cannot be done. There are also regulations which are promulgated by federal agencies, the most notable being the Federal Trade Commission, which add to or explain the statutes. When you're talking about what the trade associations do or what IDA does in particular, the reason why it's guidelines is because for a lot of these subjects, it's important to keep away from the bright lines, but without restricting the ability of the trade association and its members to offer value to their members. 
an individual has the right to do whatever he or she or it wants to do. One company has the right to compete however it chooses. And that's, I'm saying that in the context of antitrust. Obviously, there are some laws that can not be broken. You can't engage in fraud or things like that. But if one competitor decides that it wants to charge a certain amount for a product or a service, it has the right to do that. If one company decides they don't want to sell to certain people or certain places, they have the right generally to do that as well. The guidelines should not restrict individual actions except where they start interacting with other dealers so that they could start crossing that anti-competitive line. So what I think I heard you say is that the key when we look at antitrust violations is it's between more than one company. But more than one company is kind of the definition of a trade association. So Brian, why do we talk so much about antitrust when we're dealing with trade association activities? What's the connection? The connection is that a trade association brings together competitors. And therefore, it is an obvious location for where they could make agreements which could put them at risk and thereby put the trade association at risk as well. But at the same time, trade associations are permitted to exist and they have value as long as they're not getting to the point of crossing the lines. But it's not just about trade associations, is it? There are times when competitors interact in other venues and other forums. So there could be other opportunities to get into illegal activities from an antitrust perspective. Absolutely. There, there's a case that came out a few years ago, for instance, that involved an action against copper tubing distributors. What the evidence found was that those parties had been engaging in effectively an anti-competitive conspiracy. And the reason why trade associations came into play there was because one of the key factual allegations that the court found to allow the action to continue was that certain events and specifically specific price fluctuations were all occurring immediately after meetings of the trade association that these competitors participated in. So it wasn't that the trade association itself necessarily was violating antitrust laws, but there were points in time where you could tell they all came together because lo and behold, there was a trade association meeting. And then the next week, all of these competitors changed their prices in what seemed like in unison. So it didn't pass the smell test in that case. The court found that those facts were significant enough that it was not going to dismiss the action. It was going to let discovery continue to determine whether or not the plaintiff who was making allegations of being damaged through antitrust violations could actually prove its case. So Brian, thank you. Outside of trade association meetings and things like that, competitors can get together and can interact. Can you give me some examples of how that could play out and what we should be watching out for? The way that it can play out is as broad as competition itself. There have been a variety of instances where 
competitors have engaged in actions which were deemed to be violating of antitrust laws, such as agreeing that they weren't going to interfere with pre-existing contracts, that they weren't going to allow certain people to do certain types of things. Realtors, for instance, have been challenged over the years for not allowing non-members to their association to have access to their listing service. And courts have frequently found that the inability to get access to the MLA service was so impeding of competition as to be an antitrust violation. There was an action that was taken by the Federal Trade Commission against the professional lighting and sign management companies of America, whereby these parties had come together both in the association, but also outside of the association to effectively allocate or seem to allocate geographic regions to each other. And so what the Trade Commission concluded was that it was not permitted for the association to regulate or restrict geographic areas where the competitors would be permitted to act, but the association was not prohibited from requesting that a member identify any geographic region within which it could quickly respond to service. So uh, to use the hypothetical, if Acme door dealer wants to identify that it can respond to a garage door call in you know, Akron, Ohio, but it can't respond quickly to a call in Cleveland or Cincinnati or somewhere else in the state, it's okay for the trade association to include that information. However, the FTC found that it would be a violation to require members to identify their geographic regions where they would provide services because that could be deemed as effectively restricting the reach of those members into other areas of of the country. So if my garage door dealer website said, we will not serve Akron, Ohio, posting that information publicly could cause a problem? No. If the door dealer himself wants to post his information on his website, he has the right to do that. It's, It's really when the National Association of Realtors would create a dictate of that, for example. Right. When it's both an aggregated source of information and a requirement in order to participate, then you start getting anti-competitive effects. Brian, I think we have an understanding now of what the rules are, or we know where to look for those rules through the guidelines, as we've been talking about. But within specific areas and between dealers, whether it's within the association or outside in the marketplace, how do these kind of violations of antitrust law, how do they come to light? What, what's the process that brings an antitrust violation to the attention of regulators? It can come up in a number of ways. When you're talking about a governmental entity, they will typically learn about an antitrust violation or a potential antitrust violation in one of two ways. One would be they would come upon it on their own, through their own investigation. 
frequently for that to happen, it would require something big, something public, something obvious. The other way is, of course, by receiving a complaint from someone else. And frequently those complaints come from either a competitor who believes that something is going on which is harming them, or it comes from someone who's disgruntled that was part of the operation in some fashion, whether it's you know, a former conspirator who then gets booted from the conspiracy or an employee who turns into a whistleblower or something like that, that drops a dime on whatever is going on. When that happens, when a competitor or a disgruntled employee files that complaint, do they have to demonstrate that there's more there than just perception? Do they have to provide evidence to the regulator? If they're only making a complaint or turning in information, then there's not a requirement that they have deeper evidence than that. To start an investigation does not require a particularly large quantum of proof. It's not even the reasonable doubt standard. It's lower than that for the beginning of an investigation. Obviously, if it's going to turn into a criminal prosecution before the Justice Department will file for or seek an indictment, they have to reach a higher level of evidence so that a grand jury will be willing to, to file the indictment or a judge to provide a search warrant. The other way that something comes to light is if the competitor feels that he has been sufficiently damaged that he wants to seek his own recovery, that would be a civil action. There, anyone can file a lawsuit. The question is, do they have enough evidence to get over the hurdle of succeeding both at the early stages to, to avoid a motion to dismiss and then later on uh, to demonstrate that they might have the ability to get to a judge or a jury at trial. Brian, from what I'm hearing you say, it does not take a lot for a competitor to file a complaint against another company. And because it's so easy for that to happen, companies should be very vigilant about how they conduct their operations and about what kind of actions and activities they get involved in. Even if there is no real violation, that perception could rule. Does that make sense to you? I would agree with that in principle. It's easy to make a complaint. And the more smoke that there is, the more facts that a complaining party can point to, the more likely that a government investigator might take it seriously. And if the conduct is sufficiently serious, then it could lead to a more extended investigation, uh, at which point once you as a company learn about it or a trade association for that matter, it becomes necessary to engage legal counsel and that is an expense and an ordeal in and of itself. That does make sense. I've heard horror stories about defending against antitrust complaints where it seems to the outsider that the rule is you're guilty until proven innocent, which is not typically what we hear 
when we watch Law and Order. I would take issue with the idea that you are actually guilty until proven innocent, but I would agree that once you are in the system, you are going to be in the system for a while and certainly feel as though you are being treated as guilty until proven innocent. There is a lot of process that can go on before a company can achieve vindication, some of which they may not even know about until the investigation becomes public. And for that reason, it's a lot easier to avoid conduct that even has the perception of violation than to get out of an investigation once it has broken out. Let's shift for a little bit, Brian, and talk about the civil action process versus a criminal complaint. What, what are the numbers? Are, are most violations that are reported or complaints that are filed on the civil side or on the criminal side? There are definitely more civil actions, significantly more, in fact, than criminal prosecutions. Criminal prosecutions tend to be reserved for either the most extreme violations or the ones that are the easiest to prove. Since a government agency has limited resources and also may have a particular uh, political orientation to be more or less approving of certain types of competitive activity. With civil, you have the ability to have it brought by a federal or state organization where they're seeking either damages or some type of injunctive relief, possibly including the breaking up of monopolies or com combinations of trade. But then you also have the ability to have private actors seek to enforce antitrust laws most frequently brought by other competitors. What about politics? Does that play into this at all? Oh, absolutely. The difference in how the two major parties in the United States view antitrust is pretty significant. In the prior administration, there was definitely a less activist approach to most types of antitrust laws, whereas the present administration has issued statements viewing antitrust as an area for increased enforcement. Has that happened? It's early in the current administration. And so I can't say that there has been a significant uptick. Certainly there have been suggestions that it will occur. One of the most well-known publicly are the suggestions that uh, a company like Facebook may need to face antitrust action because of its near monopoly power with respect to its certain niche of the social media industry. Well, thank you for bringing up Facebook. I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. What I have heard from you through this whole process is exactly what I expected to hear. And that is, there are a lot of reasons why antitrust violations should be avoided at all costs. It sounds like it's a very difficult an expensive process to defend against. And by the way, it's also the right thing to do is to operate in a legal, moral, and ethical manner. So now that we've put that on the table, as a door dealer, what should I do to make sure that I stay 
on the right path and keep my nose clean. Regarding the expense of antitrust violations, one thing I also want to throw in there is when there is a civil judgment finding a violation of antitrust laws, damages are trebled. So it can be even more expensive to the extent that a company is profiting or viewed to be profiting from uh, violating antitrust laws, the punishment can be that much harsher. With respect to what a company can do in order to protect itself against uh, the potential for antitrust liability, certainly the most obvious is that any dealer should engage in the thought process of what is in the best interest of my company and not thinking of how can I team up with other competitors in ways that would be detrimental to competition as a whole. If I'm thinking first and foremost about the good for my customers, then I am less likely to engage in conduct which would ultimately be viewed by a government entity or a judge or a jury to be anti-competitive and therefore violative of the antitrust laws. What should I do then in my interactions with competitors, whether it's over the telephone, in person, and as we talked about a minute ago, on social media, platforms like Facebook? There are definitely topics which should be regarded as off limits and therefore avoid discussing them at trade association meetings or in public forums like social media and the like. Pricing of goods or services in the sense of current or future pricing is a topic to be avoided discussions of allocation of customers or territories is a topic to be avoided. Exchange of competitively sensitive information in a way that is intended to be detrimental to customers or to competition is an area to be avoided. Having experienced counsel who can look at what you're doing as a business is a worthwhile thing, taking a self-analytical view. If you are participating in a trade association, especially in, in leadership as a director or the like, being active in the preparation of agendas and preparing in advance of meetings to make sure to vet language that could look like it is crossing the line is a wise idea. Then keeping good records of what is discussed so that in the event that there are any sort of allegations or investigations so that you can show that the topics that were discussed were on the correct side of the line is a good idea. Engaging in social media is risky because it creates a record which is there basically forever. What you say in a public forum is accessible and easily accessible both to a government agency or to a competitor. And so while it's not unlawful and it's not 
a violation to be in a chat room where antitrust talk happens, there is the risk of being tarred by that brush if you are active in a forum where that is going on. I've observed a lot of discussions on social media platforms. You were talking about pricing. Another topic that I've seen come up from time to time is a question about labor rates. How does that play into antitrust law? Labor rate could be payments to a subcontractor, whether it's piecework or it could be simply hourly rates. There are risks to making agreements at that level as well. The anti-competitive investigation doesn't always go from the seller to the customer. It can also be the interrelationship between the employers and the labor pool of employees. If parties are setting prices, fixing prices, then that is a disruption of competition in some aspect of the industry and can become the foundation for an antitrust action. I understand that agreements about pricing between competitors is an antitrust violation. But if two competitors agree to set labor rates identical, is that also an antitrust violation or is that a violation of another kind or is it okay? To the extent that two or more competitors agree to set labor rates, that could be a violation of antitrust laws. If the purpose of it is to fix or control the labor market effectively in a way that is harmful to competition, the people who are being harmed in that case, the laborers, the employees, could potentially bring suit if they find out that there is this collusion going on. Brian, we've been talking a lot about competitors, but if a door dealer in Akron, Ohio is having a conversation with another door dealer who's based in San Francisco, California, they're clearly not competing, and they're having discussions, whether it's on the phone or in a meeting or even on Facebook, and they're talking about prices and they're talking about payrolls and they're talking about their, their costs from their suppliers and what they're paying for freight. And they have shared that information, but they're not competitors. Is that a problem? It may be. It probably isn't. It will depend on the circumstances. If they're just talking, and especially if they're not in the same market, the likelihood that their actions would impact competition in some way are probably low enough that it would not ever turn into any sort of enforcement action. To the extent, though, that they agree to act in concert, there is a violation there. Again, whether or not it becomes an enforcement action is a different story. So it's the question of, do you want to avoid breaking the law or do you want to avoid being convicted of breaking the law that governs how those particular individuals 
engage in their particular communications. Well, in that example, Brian, the dealers are obviously separated by thousands of miles. But if this is happening on social media, there are a lot of other onlookers and participants perhaps in that discussion, especially if it's in a group setting. I would think there would be a lot of risk in having that kind of a conversation in the public like that. Even if it's a legal conversation between two parties, the problem is you can't control who else comes to the table and what they say. And that I think is one of the issues with social media, particularly Facebook groups, a conversation that starts out very innocuous and innocent and legal can somehow move into areas that are not so innocent, innocuous or legal. And at that point in time, the two parties that are having a conversation now have totally lost control of that conversation. What's your perspective on those kinds of interactions between competitors who maybe aren't even really competitors, but other parties are at the same table? I agree with you that when you introduce more people to the discussion, you are increasing your risks. And I would counsel any of my clients to avoid having those sorts of discussions in public fora for that exact reason, that it creates a record for one, but also it is potentially the sort of thing that can be viewed as being bigger than just a guy from one state and a guy from another state talking about it, and rather perhaps a way of telegraphing information across a broader swath of the market and therefore having the perception that it is intended to move the market in an anti-competitive way. Thanks for that explanation. That makes a lot of sense. The IDA code of business conduct talks about operating a company in a moral, ethical manner. That sets the bar for how door dealers should govern their businesses. It seems that rather than trying to avoid prosecution or conviction, we would hope that IDA members and all door dealers would want to avoid the violations. And the best way to do that is to make sure that you do the right thing. So we started out by talking about do's and don'ts from an antitrust perspective for door dealers. So when I say to you, door dealers should do the right thing, what are those do the right things? What are the do's in that paradigm? The do's are acting in a pro-competitive, legitimate, and self-interested way. A company should set its prices based on its own factors its own business goals, its own aims for how to build its business and profit. It should not agree with other competitors so that they can fix prices, restrict competition, control markets, and the like. As long as you can demonstrate that you are acting on an individual basis, you can at least have the opportunity to show that you are within the pro-competitive realm that antitrust is intended to create. So let's flip the switch now into the don'ts. So to avoid not just the reality of illegal behavior or an antitrust law violation, but also the perception of that, what should door dealers not do from the standpoint of their interactions with competitors, whether in the marketplace or in association meetings 
or in any venue? I would recommend against discussions of specific information such as current or future pricing. I would recommend against discussions of allocation of customers or territories. I would recommend against discussions of output restrictions or production capacity. The sharing of what a company probably considers to be valuable proprietary information, when you start sharing it, you both devalue it, but you also are more likely to be creating a potential perception that you're acting in that way to control markets in an anti-competitive fashion. One of the words that we've used most in our discussion today, Brian, is the word price or pricing. But price or pricing isn't necessarily just the dollar amount on an invoice. There are other factors that are considered to be part and parcel of pricing. Can you talk about those? Sure. Um, There's a difference between advertising a price and figuring out how the price is composed. And it's important to distinguish between them because it's okay to do one and it might be problematic for the other. If a manufacturer publishes a price, say $1,000 to use a very round number that is not based on anything for a given door, and it will sell that door for $1,000 to anyone who shows up and says, I want that door for $1,000. That's advertising. That is providing public information to the market as a whole, and there is nothing unlawful about that. The risk is where manufacturers put their heads together and say, we should sell the basic entry door for $1,000 so that we can all be sure that we're going to make a certain amount of money on that door. Because of course, There are all of the price inputs, there are the labor inputs, there are the transit inputs and the like. And because they know what makes up all of their costs, if they decide that they're all going to effectively be sure of having a profit because nobody is going to be underselling them, that is anti-competitive. And that's what the antitrust laws are designed to get at. Now, a manufacturer can decide that because a certain dealer is going to buy more of a product, so he has a, the manufacturer has a guaranteed market, the manufacturer may decide to offer a certain discount to that dealer or to that class of dealer, that if you agree to buy above a certain amount every year, that reduces the manufacturer's risk. That's not a problem. The government is not going to act against that. However, to the extent that dealers try to come together to force a manufacturer or a group of manufacturers to provide the same sort of discount to all of them, again, you're getting into collective action and collective action is where the antitrust laws start to kick in. When it's a one-to-one relationship, that's competition, where it's a group of people working together in order to control prices, that's where antitrust starts to to move in. Does that extend to warranties as well? 
It can, but it depends on the circumstances. The industry, you know, the construction industry has established that there should be a one-year warranty on workmanship. And we know this not because the construction groups have agreed to it. We know this because it shows up in the form contracts. If you look at the AIA contract and the consensus docs contract, they both have as their base language, a one-year warranty on workmanship. No one is arguing that that is a violation of antitrust laws because among other things, if the parties to the particular contractual relationship decide that they actually want a two-year warranty rather than a one-year warranty, they can negotiate that. So as long as there is an interaction between the parties, a warranty is not in and of itself problematic. Again, the, the, the concern is when a group of competitors decide what is going to be acceptable and they use that to do things that affect the market in some way, that's where it crosses the line or potentially crosses the line. Back to the topic of what we should not do, the antitrust guidelines that IDA prepares sounds like it might be actually a good source of reading material for all, all door dealers. If a door dealer follows the guidelines, in most cases, that's going to keep them away from many of the types of violations that would often result in complaints or actions. Yes, no. The IDA guidelines are not the end-all be-all of antitrust laws, certainly. Um, I've looked at other uh, trade association guidelines that get into more detail and therefore might provide a better roadmap. If IDA wanted to have a more extensive roadmap, it could certainly consider doing so. Uh, but I think the first line of defense for any company would be to get legal advice of where it can and can't or should or should not go if it wants to be having interactions with competitors beyond just the, the social and surface level uh, communications that one might have at Expo, for instance. I think that's a great segue, Brian, into the relationship between IDA and Saffron Law. It extends beyond just the legal counsel for the association itself. Can you tell us more about the services that Saffron Law provides to IDA members? Sure. One of the things that our firm has been doing for several years is providing a complimentary consultation service for IDA members. Uh, it's a limited service. It typically involves responding to an initial phone call or email. It's not always restricted just to what can be done in a 15-minute block of time, but that's kind of the rule of thumb. Obviously, I am only licensed to practice law currently in North Carolina, along with having my California license, which is on an inactive status. So I can't officially give legal advice to any companies who are outside of the state of North Carolina. That said, I can provide educational information about the issues that a, an IDA member brings to me 
and the other service that I am able to provide and have happily provided to a number of IDA members is I've got a fairly decent network of construction attorneys throughout the country who I trust, many of whom I have met through another trade association, the American Bar Association Forum on Construction Law, and therefore have been able to refer IDA members to other attorneys who are licensed to practice in their particular state or jurisdiction. Thank you, Brian. Antitrust is really not a laughing matter. It's also kind of a dry subject a lot of times, but I would imagine anybody that's ever been involved in an antitrust claim or an antitrust action understands the importance of it. So while it may not be the most exciting topic to discuss, if you're ever part of an action, I think you would find it to be quite riveting, perhaps. I'm not sure how to say that, but... So Brian, I want to thank you very much for taking time today to talk to our members about antitrust. And again, it sounds like the one takeaway is avoid entering into any agreements with competitors that could be related to price or any of the other topics that we discussed, anything that would look like it's restricting open competition. And that would probably be the litmus test, the rule of thumb. Brian, thanks again for coming on. I really do appreciate your time today. Thank you, Mike. And thank you to Saffron Law Firm for the support you provide IDA from that broader perspective. I want to thank you, Mike, for inviting me to participate in the, the podcast. It's been an interesting discussion. Obviously, antitrust is a complicated subject, and we want to help guide all IDA members to avoid the, the dangerous aspects of it. Going forward, IDA as an association offers a lot of value both to its members and to the industry. It lives up to what is both permitted and desired from trade associations. Having the code of business conduct is something that is recognized as appropriate for trade associations. Trying to set a standard of practice for quality in the industry is something that is approved of by uh, the enforcement agencies for a trade association. IDA lives up to its goals, but it can only do that through the actions of its members. Thanks, Brian. That is a wonderful closing. I hope to be able to see you soon. So this is Mike Fisher with my guest, Brian Schoolman of Saffron Law Offices, and we're signing off from the Winding Bar Cafe. To our listeners, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. We hope you enjoyed today's IDA DoorCast, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the IDA DoorCast. Be sure to catch our next episode. For more information about IDA, visit doors.org. See you next time.